Welcome to the New Books Network. Nationwide protests against COVID-related restrictions broke out recently in China following years of a so-called zero-COVID policy imposed by the Chinese Communist Party. The demonstrations, widespread but not obviously coordinated, were the largest since those at Tiananmen Square in 1989. Protesters objected to unpredictable lockdowns, incessant testing requirements, and weeks-long isolation and uncertain access to food as part of the restrictions. At the extreme, protesters called for uh, Communist Party Chairman Xi Jinping to step down a short time after he had solidified his place as the strongest leader in China since Mao. Where are all these demonstrations going? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today William Hurst, who's Chonghua Professor of Chinese Development and Deputy Director of the Center for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. He's author of Ruling Before the Law, The Politics of Legal Regimes in China and Indonesia uh, from Cambridge University Press in 2018, and The Chinese Worker After Socialism, uh, Cambridge University Press 2009. His current and ongoing work focuses on the politics of land reform in mainland China, Taiwan, Indonesia, and Malaysia, as well as on the foreign policy and international relations of China and other countries across Asia and the Pacific. Prior to Cambridge, he was professor of political science at Northwestern University. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today, Bill Hurst. Thank you very much for having me, John. It's great to be here. Great, great to have you. So maybe let's just start with a brief account of what's happening in China at present. I mean, in the aftermath of a fire in Urumqi in Xinjiang province um, that, that killed 10 people who couldn't get out of their building due to COVID restrictions, China has witnessed the most extensive demonstrations since 1989. How would you describe these de- demonstrations and the threat they may pose to the C- CCP's rule. Well, the fire that happened on the 24th of November uh, was not the only incident in which ongoing zero COVID measures and lockdown restrictions appear to have disrupted the delivery of essential social services or public goods. So what happened is there was a a large fire in in an apartment tower uh, in which at least 10 people died and video Uh, got out on social media across China. So there were videos of what looked to be fire engines approaching the building and then being unable to get close enough to fight the fire effectively because of barriers that were put up in the street. You could also hear in the videos what sounded to be people screaming and begging to be let out, uh, alleging that they, they couldn't get out of their apartments, that they'd been locked in. Now, we don't know absolutely for certain that, in fact, people were locked into apartments. The government has denied it. Um, The official interpretation of the videos also does not agree uh, with the idea that firefighters couldn't reach the buildings effectively. 
Um, so there, there is that degree of, of sort of doubt uh, around exactly what happened, but it looks very bad. I've seen the videos um, and it, it's honestly very hard to watch. And so what happened then is that that video got out across social media uh, and diffused widely in Chinese society. And then people were touched by that in a way that motivated them relatively spontaneously to protest. So if we see typically across China for many, many years, lots of protests every day, at least dozens, really hundreds most days that happen all over the country, those tend to be relatively discreet, both in the sense that they're localized and in the sense that they are clustered around particular sets of grievances, claims, and, and framing. So we tend to see a lot of labor protest that happens in factories and around factories, around usually specific issues uh, related to working conditions or employment in those factories. We tend to see a lot of student protests on campuses about issues, again, specific to universities uh, and, and individual campuses. We tend to see a lot of rural protests, often around taxation and fees uh, and uh, requisition of land for real estate development. And then we also see a lot of these protests around kind of urban governance issues and delivery of urban social services and public goods. Occasionally, we also see small outbreaks of more systemic critiques against the Communist Party or against top leaders, as in fact we saw famously just before the start of the 20th Party Congress uh, in October, uh, when uh, one protester, uh, it seems, it doesn't look like there's more than one person there, set up on top of a bridge, Sitongqiao, in the northwest part of Beijing and unfurled these banners. Uh, many of the slogans from those banners having then been taken up, in fact, by the protesters last weekend uh, on the 26th and 27th of November. Uh, so what seems to have happened is that this fire and the outrage around it formed what I've, in other places, sometimes referred to as a structural frame or a mass frame. In other words, a kind of a frame for contentious uh, mobilization that is not systematically or conscientiously or deliberately crafted by an individual or organization, but rather exists structurally in society, yet resonates powerfully enough across a wide range of constituents uh, or constituencies to motivate them to come out to protest relatively spontaneously without that organization. So this one seems to have brought out workers, uh, urban residents upset about governance issues, students, and then also these more sort of broad regime critics. And they protested quite uh, in quite large scale and quite vociferously for several days, uh, Saturday, Sunday, and, and in some cases into Monday uh, of, of that week, the 26th, 27th, and in some cases the 28th. Um, yet they then seem largely to have dissipated, the protests have. Uh, in large part, I suspect, because that structural frame that provided kind of a master narrative began to fray, that some of the protesters just got tired. They decided, oh, Monday's here, I've got to go to work, or other things were happening. Some of the students realized they were really upset about something quite specific, which was that universities moved completely back online and were beginning to tell students that they had to vacate dormitories and university housing. Yet when they tried to go home, if they didn't live in the same city, a lot of cities were refusing to allow people to come in from other parts of the country because of 
fears about bringing in COVID. And so the students were angry at their universities that they were being essentially rendered homeless. They weren't necessarily angry about the fire or about the other issues. There were then workers who were really angry about being locked into factories, as famously happened in the Foxconn plant in Zhengzhou, um, because there were the factory ownership was afraid that lockdown would prevent people from going into work and they didn't want to have to shut down the factory. So they forced people to stay inside right. to prevent them from having to leave. And then you get these sort of broader critics of the CCP who started shifting the narrative if they could towards claims about censorship and freedom of the press and larger issues that they perceived with the communist party. And, and so that I think actually had the effect of alienating some of the others. And so we saw this kind of fraying apart or unraveling of this interwoven set of strands back into distinct repertoires uh, and frames of contention. I see. So let me see if I have this straight. I mean, basically, you seem to be saying that, you know, there are protests around China all the time, lots of them every day. Yeah. Um, now, there has been as a result in part anyway, of this uh, fire in this apartment building in Urumqi, uh, you know, an upset and an unhappiness among people across the country about, you know, how the government did or didn't respond to this event uh, and to these deaths. And, um, you know, so there's a brief upsurge of protests that were specifically targeted on the COVID policies and perhaps to a certain extent on CCP rule more broadly, but that those have subsided and, you know, we're back to the kind of status quo of regular, but sort of not uh, regime threatening sorts of uh, uh, protests more broadly. Is that right? It, it looks that way. It's still very early days and it's, it's difficult to predict what's really going to happen. Um, but it looks as though what the government did is they, they basically just signaled that they might think about repression rather than actually repressing harshly uh, and otherwise just waited uh, for the protests to dissipate. And they do indeed appear to have done so. But the big question now is what enduring impact might they have? And we also, just off the top of my head right now, thinking about fires in buildings from which people couldn't escape. There's a famous example, of course, the Triangle Fire, um, and I think it was 1910 or so, uh, in which a large number of workers died in a garment factory in Manhattan. Uh, and there were protests after that, significant ones, some of which went on for a little while and drew together a diverse set of constituencies. They didn't really continue that long from what I can remember, but they did result in significant changes, right? That's why we have fire codes. And it's, it's one of the reasons why some of the uh, workplace safety laws and regulations came in relatively soon after that. And it's possible, although I don't know that we can really yet draw this causal link. I think it's tempting to, but I don't think we can be sure yet. It's plausible to think that um, the protests have spurred the CCP to think about easing lockdown a bit faster uh, than they had been otherwise. I had thought for a long time that they would be looking to try to roll back some of the zero COVID measures starting in March after the two meetings of the Chinese National People's Congress and the Chinese People's Political Consultative Congress. Um, I thought there'd be strong political reasons to keep them in place until then, but then strong economic and social reasons to start rolling them back after that. It's looking now like they might actually be trying to move faster, 
Um, and like they might try to be looking more proximately at, at a date like Chinese New Year on the 22nd of January as a date to try to get back to normal. And that would be some change. And even just in the last few days to a week, clearly the tone has shifted from the government. And, and there have been some significant, if clearly incremental and gradual steps taken towards an easing of some of the harshest measures. So it may be that these had some effect uh, even on shifting policy, despite having not really been maintained or, or sustained for very long. Right. I mean, to the untrained observer like myself, I mean, it certainly has appeared that the CCP has been inclined to relax, you know, this so-called zero COVID policy. Um, And, you know, people seem to be happy about that. Um, I mean, where this leaves the sort of power of the CCP, we can get back to. But in the meantime, um, you know, a lot of people have raised the problem that the zero COVID policy has its own kind of uh, boomerang in effect, um, that basically the Chinese population does not have the levels of immunity that we have in the United States, where to some degree it's not as high as it could be. But in any case, comparatively speaking, China has low levels of immunity and therefore is at risk if it relaxes these you know, very stringent COVID measures. Uh, it's at risk of large scale you know, outbreaks and, and potential illness and death. So how do you see that kind of playing out? Well, I think that's right. And I think that is a legitimate concern uh, among many in Chinese society and in the Chinese state. Um, But it is something that they're trying to address, right? So there's a couple of reasons why levels of immunity are not that high. One is uh, that because of the very success of zero COVID, no one's had COVID pretty much. I mean, some people have, but the number of cases is infinitesimally small relative to the population, certainly compared to a place like the United States or most European countries where the vast majority of people have been exposed by now um, to the pathogen itself. Uh, In China, that's definitely not the case. The other thing is that the vaccines were deployed differently in China. So different vaccines were developed and used there than have been used in most other parts of the world. And a lot has been made of the fact that these vaccines are apparently at least somewhat less effective um, although they do appear to be safe and not ineffective, right? So they're, they're not useless vaccines uh, by any means. But they've been very widely offered to people in China, but a certain group of people haven't taken them up. And that group is elderly people. Right? Elderly people have not taken them up at the same rates that they have in other countries. And some of that is because the vaccines were deployed in a different priority order. So if we look at the US or the UK, the, the vaccines were deployed clearly in order to reduce deaths from the virus. The virus was all over the place. The government was very concerned to use the vaccine to try to stop people from dying. And so the people prioritized to get vaccinated first were precisely those most vulnerable to the virus, the elderly and others with health, health conditions and so forth. In China, the vaccines were deployed, at least at first, in order to prevent spread the virus was controlled and not really in, in an outbreak. Uh, and so they were worried about it surging again. And so they tried to prioritize people for the vaccines who were most likely to spread the virus rather than to die from it. So elderly people were not necessarily at the front of the queue. And if we look at who didn't get vaccinated in very large numbers in the US, it's young people who were at the back of the line in those early rounds who by the time the vaccine gets offered to them, they'd already had COVID. 
right? Or, or maybe even twice had COVID. Whereas in China, it's the old people at the end of the line. They're also the sort of laggards and taking it up. And so I think what's happening now, and there's other reasons too. I mean, I hear anecdotally that people are concerned that the vaccine might exacerbate conditions like diabetes or high blood pressure. Uh, and so a lot of elderly people have those conditions and they're worried about you know, using the vaccine because it might exacerbate that. Never mind the fact that if you don't take the vaccine, you might die from COVID. Um, but what they're doing now, it seems, is that almost like clockwork on December 1st, a major new initiative was launched to try to get elderly people vaccinated. People who are not vaccinated at all, get them vaccinated. And I don't think you can do that in 24 hours or 48 hours. You can't launch a major campaign like that. Even the Chinese government isn't that agile and, and uh, well-resourced. And so I'm sure that was in the works for a very long time. And I do think the target date for that would be to get a critical mass of elderly people fully immunized in time for Chinese New Year. Um, just as you know, we saw booster campaigns, get your vaccine in time for Christmas um, or in time for the holidays in, in the U.S. and elsewhere. I think there's a similar logic going on now. The other issue, of course, is going to be Chinese vaccines have not been updated, as far as I know, uh, for the new variants. And so there aren't yet any updated or multivalent vaccines available to most people in China. And I, I don't think it would be very hard to create those, but it doesn't seem that they've deployed those as yet, uh, nor have they really opted to import uh, the European or American vaccines in large scale, uh, certainly not in large enough scale to offer them to most people. So they're still sticking with vaccines that are not as effective, it seems, and, and potentially a bit out of date. So, I mean, let's get back to where all this leaves the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, as you know, and I guess have you know briefly hinted at, um, you know, the Chinese Communist Party had just, you know, just a few weeks or very few months ago, uh, kind of endorsed uh, Xi Jinping for a third, an unprecedented third term as chairman of the of the party, and therefore as the most powerful person in the country. And uh, you know, there was a great deal of talk of how he was a strong, the strongest leader since Mao, and uh, you know, there was basically a great deal of emphasis on the idea that you know we were going to see this guy for a long time to come, and he really knew how to you know line up his his ducks, and he's got them in a row, and you know, the party has very deep and vast resources to kind of control dissent and and repress it where they think it's necessary. So, you know, against that background, these protests, however widespread and notable and significant, uh, I think, you know, one could see them as just a kind of drop in the bucket. And to some degree, I think that's the kind of uh, position you're taking here. Is that, is that right? Well, I'm not sure if they're just a drop in the bucket, but they're, they're closer to that than a sea change, so to speak. Um, you know, what, what, what happened in October, almost exactly a month before the protest started, is indeed that not just was Xi Jinping endorsed for another five years and almost certainly, I think, at least another 10 years uh, in power if, if, he stay, if he stays healthy um, and, and remains there, uh, is that Xi was able to line up, I guess you could call them ducks, but uh, all of the top leadership uh, for people who supported him and supported his agenda of institutional strengthening over people who were perhaps more loyal to someone else or more supportive of 
other kinds of agendas related to, for example, economic reform. And so it seems clear that he has the capacity personally and in terms of what he's done with China's institutions uh, to be able to move in any number of directions if he so chooses. And that's, that's to me, I think the really interesting story coming out of the party Congress is that this is not somebody who is a mercurial charismatic leader. Um, he's actually someone who has invested a tremendous amount in writing new rules, strengthening rules that are already there, making institutions almost more rational bureaucratic uh, than they had been before, even as he makes them more directly accountable to him and uh, hierarchically authoritarian. And so it seems to me he doesn't have to do that just to stay in power. He's doing that, I suspect, in order to advance some kind of much larger agenda. COVID, I don't know is part of that agenda or not. Um, interestingly, one of the key things that he emphasized in his opening speech at the Party Congress, and that was mentioned several times in the work report presented there, was that you know, zero COVID was a top priority. And all of the famous slogans that Xi Jinping loves uh, to reference with uh, respect to COVID were indeed referenced multiple times. Persistence is victory. If we're not advancing, we're retreating. We need total war and the people's mobilization against the virus uh, in order to have a complete uh, defeat of COVID. And nothing short of that is acceptable in all of these very hard lines and very staunch rhetoric. And so what I think is really notable is the rapidity with which Many, including Xi Jinping himself, appear to be climbing down from the harshest rhetorical heights uh, of that line and also initiating some kind of small substantive changes. So the protests are not a drop in the bucket in that sense, but in another sense, maybe even more so, which is that China's government and local authorities have learned a great deal, I think, about how to confront contentious challengers. Uh, 20, 30 years ago, I don't think they would have been able to cope with these protests as effectively as, in fact, they have. And what I think has been learned as an important lesson is that sometimes repression is too risky uh, and too costly to be the first option, that waiting a protest out can be more effective, even when you're operating from a position of strength, than going quickly to reach for the repressive tools in the toolbox that the government has. Interesting. I mean, this reminds me of a, there's an item in at least the online version, some version of the New York Times in which uh, Mike Abramowitz, the head of uh, Freedom House, is asked basically whether, you know, these uh, regimes in Iran basically and uh, China are you know, at risk of being brought down by these protests. Now, what you just said suggests that's probably not the case. But uh, his response was, well, I think these, quote, I think these regimes are more brittle than we see from the outside. As we know from the Soviet Union, regimes can seem impervious to change until they're not. So I'm curious how you would respond to that kind of comment. I think there's some validity to that, but I think it's, it's impossible to predict sort of where the tipping point might be. There's a, a lot of famous uh, scholarship around 1989 to 1991 period in Central and Eastern Europe, including the USSR, but not exclusively the USSR. If I think particularly of East Germany, um, 
believe Carl Dieter Opp was one of the key people in making this argument that there was a turning point reached uh, at which, you know, there was a certain number of people were engaged in this very high risk protest, such that joining the protest had more sense of a more, more, more chance of being effective and safe than of being ineffective or dangerous. And so once people perceived that tipping point, things unraveled very, very, very quickly. I don't think if I had to guess that China is anywhere that close to that tipping point, um, but that doesn't mean it could never get there. I think the question is just, you know, how far away are we from that? It may well be that the tipping point is closer in a place like Iran. But what I think is instructive about not just the protests, but the response that we've seen is that, you know, 25 years ago or so, I was always struck in, in thinking about different responses that local governments could take in China to protest. And I kind of argued that if a government's really strong, they'll give some concessions and they'll try to bargain. And they can do that because they can afford to take on then all the other people who will be induced to protest afterwards. Right? So if I give you what you want or some of what you want, uh, I can easily reach a kind of Nash bargaining solution with you such that I give you enough that you'll go home, but not so much that I can't afford it. But what about the 10 other people who will show up and ask for the same or better tomorrow, right? If, if I'm confident I can deal with all of them, then I'm going to bargain, right? If I'm really strong and really powerful. And that's what we saw happening with workers' protests, for example, in Shanghai in the late 90s, or early 2000s. And then if I'm not as strong, but I still have a pretty high capacity, if you come out and protest, I know I can't deal with those other 10 people. I'm going to repress you and repress you very harshly if I can in order to signal to everybody else that I'm repressive and not uh, conciliatory and therefore deter all of those other people. And I can bear the cost of repression because I've got enough resources for that and I'm reputationally sort of strong enough that I don't mind being criticized for repressing you either. I can sort of deal with those slings and arrows that come my way. But if I'm really weak at the local level, I can't do anything. I'm not strong enough to repress. I'm not confident that I could manage to repress you successfully. I don't have the capacity or I'm so uh, broken by so many years of, of attack uh, on my reputation that I'm scared that I would look so bad by repressing you that I, I don't want to try. Um, and I certainly can't bargain with you because I've got nothing to give. Right? Then I just don't do anything. And if anything, I might use the fact that you're protesting to try to signal to people higher up the chain in the central government or in the province, please give me more resources so I can actually do something for this aggrieved party. And that's what we saw actually happening in workers' protests in parts of, say, the northeast of China during that time. Now, what's happening here is that we've seen protests where the claims are being directed uh, precisely against the central government. Now, another thing that always used to fascinate me was this idea of hidden targets, right? That the protesters might actually be angry with the central government, but targeting the central government won't get you anywhere. So you target the local government and, you know, through that, try to get the central government to act uh, to, to ameliorate the problem. In this case, it almost seems like the protesters were targeting the central government directly to try to get the local government to act. So there's a bit of a reversal there or an innovation of, of tactics and targeting uh, based on what we're seeing before. We're seeing something different now. The other thing is that the government seems to have adopted the do nothing response not from an, a position of weakness, but from a position of, I think, at least self-perceived strength. I don't have to respond. I can afford to wait this out. And you'll get tired of this 
or your movement will break apart before I have to do anything, whether repressive or conciliatory. And that seems to have actually worked. So it's, it's an interesting reversal, both of the tactics and targeting of the protesters and of the responses that we saw from the state. I mean, it's interesting also from the point of view that a lot of the Chinese state's strength in the last 40 years has had to do with its economy, with, mm. you know, the massive improvement in the well-being of millions and millions of people, uh, which has slowed uh, noticeably mm. and not least because of the zero COVID policy. So, uh, you know, what exactly is the source of the strength and what is the, you know, the weakness that's coming out of the slowing of the economy? I think there's a couple of factors to this. Um, there's issues around the economy, and then there's what we can read from the politics of how it's been handled about the way the state views the economy versus other areas uh, of policy. So in terms of the economy itself, there, there's two issues. There's a longer-term issue and a shorter-term issue, or sort of generalized chronic issue and proximate issue. The chronic issue is that after 2008, China's export-oriented industrialization model doesn't really work anymore for delivering very high rates of GDP growth the way that it did for about 15 years after 1994. And to date, China has not yet been able to hit upon or implement a viable replacement. And they've been trying for a long time, you know, since at least two, I remember, I remember going to a conference in Beijing in 2010 uh, with some officials and scholars and a bunch of international academics and others in which people from the central government stood up and said, we can't rely on export processing manufacturing anymore. We need to move up product cycles. We need to move into higher value added sectors. I was a bit surprised to hear that because I hadn't heard it so starkly put before, but that became the official line. There were all these attempts to find a made in China 2025 strategy and all these different things. None of them yet has fully worked. And so there's a problem there of kind of falling into this uh, trap of a partial reform equilibrium or middle income trap or whichever way you want to phrase it, um, where further upgrading is, is really difficult or escapes the ability of the state to do it. The more proximate issue is indeed zero COVID and, and all of the supply chain disruptions and restrictions, which have been collectively absolutely devastating to China's economy in the past several years. Uh, it's very difficult to quantify or get exact data on how bad those effects have been, but it's obvious that they've been really severe. So the economy is in very, very bad shape, that's for sure. Now, what does this tell us, though, about sort of more general political orientation? Jiang Zemin died also within the last 10 days, which is another key event on top of the protest. Almost right as the protests were beginning to, apparently beginning to die down, Jiang Zemin died in a way that many thought might reinvigorate protests or provide a new kind of master frame uh, in the way that the death of Hu Yaobang did in uh, 1989 uh, in motivating a lot of people initially to turn out uh, to protest then. It didn't, at least not so far. But what is instructive when reflecting upon Jiang Zemin versus uh, Xi Jinping in terms of this, this view of the economy versus other things is that Jiang Zemin was very clear that China needed to grow its economy and become more prosperous in order to build political power. Right? Political power would follow from economic development. Xi Jinping appears, he, he hasn't quite said this, but my perception is that he's almost reversed this. He's looking at this through, through sort of a converse process in which he thinks he needs to strengthen the political institutions 
and political authority and control and his political position before we can really worry about economic development, which is why I suspect that what may be in the cards is actually a renewed focus on a serious restructuring of the economy uh, once we get beyond this zero COVID period, and certainly once we get beyond March and, and those two meetings that I mentioned. I think that it may well be that we see a, a very significant new initiative on, on restructuring or reform of the economy such that we haven't seen really in almost 20 years or more. So, uh, well, we'll have to wait and see what happens, I guess, in the, in the Chinese case. But since you're also uh, something of an expert on Indonesia, I wanted to sort of ask a question that may connect to the China situation. But, uh, I mean, as you know, they've just now voted for a kind of uh, outlawing of uh, sex outside of marriage, which not only makes it illegal to have sex uh, if you're not married, but also also makes it illegal for gay people to uh, engage in sex because they're not going to be married. Um, and I sort of wondered, I mean, you know, Indonesia is sort of famous for this, uh, you know, easygoing kind of Islam. And yet this move seems to have been attributed to, you know, a kind of st- stronger um, drive on the part of uh, conservative Muslims to, to make this kind of statement. And I'm just wondering, it seems to fit into a larger pattern, particularly with Russia, uh, but Russia, Hungary, and you know, China is you know, in some sense at least allied with uh, with Russia. I mean, whether this is part of what seems to be a larger kind of culture war against the West, uh, or is this sort of a one-off that has you know other other causes? I mean, is this part of a growing kind of anti-Western? coalition that you know sees the west as decadent i mean this term decadent is kind of you know uh, emerging as part of the discussion which i find intriguing a little worrisome but intriguing and unusual so i'm curious what you would say about what's going on in in indonesia i I think there's a couple aspects uh to how this came about in indonesia so one is indeed that what we've seen over the last really the last 10 or 15 years in Indonesian politics is an increasing mobilization of political parties and political groups, very often actually not political parties, but political groups that are Islamically inflected uh, and claim at least to be pursuing an agenda of bringing uh, religious values into the political and social arena. And especially in the last 10 years, but even before that in Indonesia, as is, I think, increasingly true in much of the world, their focus has not been on kind of high politics or grand strategy, right? And and not trying to to remake uh, what states are or how they relate to each other uh, or form some kind of new religiously based uh, confederacy of states and nothing like that, Um, but rather to take on these kind of social issues uh, and and uh, petty political issues much closer to home, right? This kind of new uh, new face of is- Islamism, if we wanted to call it that, uh, which is much more about sort of regulating the family rather than regulating uh, national life or the family of nations. And I think that's part of what this is. This is of a piece with that. It's also true that in Indonesian politics for the last 10 years or so, um, since the run-up to the 2014 election especially, 
there has been a rising tide of mobilization of what we could call a populist variety, uh, particularly tied to uh, one politician, Proboa Subianto, um, who is now actually serving in, in, in government uh, alongside his erstwhile rival, uh, Joko Widodo, who's the this, uh, sitting president. But not only Prabowo, but others uh, that he's tried to mobilize and others trying to mobilize even against him have tapped into this idea that it's important to bring in groups and constituencies and segments of society who previously had felt excluded uh, or repressed or disrespected uh, and to do so in ways that are extraordinary uh, to the quotidian of usual patronage politics and dividing the spoils that tends to dominate uh, the arena in Indonesia. And so that's been sort of the, the, the push and the rhetoric. This criminal code isn't exactly that. And I would, I would hesitate to say it's populist because to be populist is to be democratic, but not legal in your orientation. Right, is to be you know, sort of demagogic rather than 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 uh, than democratic and formally rational. This is democratic and formally rational, but it is bowing to the concerns of populist groups and politicians in a way. I think to try to co-opt or steal their thunder. Um, so I think actually there are some politicians who voted for this and have advocated for this in order not just to advance the substantive agenda of what's there, but actually to kind of do an end run around what could be a kind of more populist anti-institutional mobilization later. Interesting. Well, we'll have to come back and uh, have a longer discussion about Indonesia sometime in the future. But uh, great. Yeah. But that's it for today. I'm afraid we're out of time. I want to thank William Hurst of the University of Cambridge for sharing his insights about the situation in China and to some extent in Indonesia today. Um, look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Oswaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Mm-hmm.